This is Michael Easley in Context, and you've joined us today on an extraordinary program. I am thrilled to have Dr. Eric Ortland with us. Dr. Ortland earned his PhD from the University of Edinburgh. He teaches at Oak Hill College in London, and he's previously taught Old Testament at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Sasquatch. I can't ever say it, Sasquatch one. Just mumble. Is that okay? <laughs> Just say it really, really quickly. It'll probably sound right. Yeah, Canada. Uh, for 10 years, he and his wife, Erin, have got two kids. Where, where is home right now for you, Dr.? So I live in the far north of London. We're just inside the city limits. That's where you want to live if you live in London, right? (laughs) It's a big place. It's a big place for sure. It's a big place and it's gotten complicated. Last few times I was there, some of the romance, I'm sorry to say, is gone, but I guess that's true of a lot of major cities anyway. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, doing this, Dr. Orland. And let's first of all, talk a little bit about I mean, I know you get this cliche question, why write a book on suffering? My goodness, there's so many books and uh, topics and authors who have preceded you. Suffering Wisely and Well, which is basically a study of Job and some of your expository observations. Yeah, that's a fair question, and it's one I asked myself more than once. I think the main reason was when I started teaching Old Testament in Canada, God was very kind to me, opened up a teaching position, and I had to teach wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, I knew exactly zero about that part of the Old Testament. (laughs) Close your eyes, what do you see? That's what I knew about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. I appreciate that. So I'm in this crash course on these three books, and over and over again when I teach Job, people come up to me after class, or they raise their hand in the middle of class, and they're saying something on the variation of, this happened to me, or this happened Mm. to someone in my family, or someone really important to me. And I did not know this was in the Bible. So I was, I shouldn't have been so surprised that the book of Job was so relevant pastorally. I was. And unfortunately, in our context, I don't think it's very well understood or preached about a lot or anything like that. So, so many books are published every year. So many of them are so great. I just didn't want to add to the pile. But I thought that there was something that wouldn't be repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, a couple of my observations, and I've taught through sections of Job. I love the book of Job. I'm weird in mm. that regard. I came across a, a friend of mine was driving late one night on AM radio. He heard this preacher say the story of Job was, I can't eat by day, I can't sleep by night, and the woman I love don't treat me right. <laughs> so anyway, in my teaching of the book, I came up with this, and I want you to joust back with me on this. The story, it's glimpses of doubt in the midst of faith or glimpses of faith in the midst of doubt. So we live in this context of I doubt God, I don't believe he's good, why would he allow suffering, and that's my context, or I live in the midst of faith, but I do have doubts. Sure. Is that a fair thumbnail, you know? I think it is. I think there's something about Job where it's not glimpses of one with the other, it's both at 110%. Fair. Where, and I I don't think I'm disagreeing with you here, but Job, in a scary way, says some really blasphemous things about God, and in an amazing way, says some really, really faith-filled, joyful things about God, and he says them both at the same time, even though they are contradictory. So let me me interrupt. So then why is he a righteous man? Because this is a question, right? How can he be without sin and righteous if he says some pretty arrogant, uh, hubris-type statements to God? Sure. Well, I think some of the things Job says about God, in addition to being incorrect, were sinful. 
to utter. It's just sinful to say God's using me for target practice. He says that in chapter, he literally says that in chapter 16. It's, I I don't know what else to say, but it's sinful to say the stuff that he does in chapter nine, which I think is Job's low point. At the end, God is really gracious to Job. He doesn't drag Job over the coals. He doesn't say, how dare you would say that to me. It's the opposite of, you know, a hypersensitive boss who can't bear to be criticized. So God definitely does not hold his sins against him. Job is a righteous man in the sense that despite the foolish things that he says, which he recognizes at the end of the book are foolish, he's utterly ashamed he's been criticizing God Mm. this Mm. whole time. He never compromises integrity with God. He never uses his feeling of being betrayed by God as an excuse to indulge in sin. He only always obsessively talks about reconnecting with God. He never once asks for his blessed life back. He only wants to be friends with God again. Job loves God deeply and profoundly, and it, I'm not trying to speak flippantly here, it's in a literal sense, it's hell for him to think that God is angry with me, and I don't know why. And so Job does say some things that are very foolish, but over the course of the whole book, you see he deeply loves God and is faithful. Well, let's start with the fact that this is the oldest book in the Bible, and it's a long, cumbersome book. And again, just back with me here, but one of my just generic hack theologian observations has been, ironically, this is the God of the universe, the way he ordered the text. We come across this old book dealing with the problem of pain, unanswered questions, suffering as a result of the fall. And um, I remember one Hebrew professor I had talking about comic literature, and I had to be careful using Mm. that for our friends because it doesn't mean to make light of it. But the book starts out with this incredibly wonderful scenario, and then it goes down like a upside down, like a smile down exactly. and terrible, but then very quickly it's remedied in the end in a parallel passage with the front of the book. You're the Hebrew scholar, not me. But he called that comic literature for the sense of, we talk about character arcs and all these things that we add to the Bible. This is a profound work of literature. Yes. It's deeply encouraging to me that the book of Job ends where it does, because it gives us the ability to say that God sometimes allows absolutely nightmarish ordeals, but they're never permanent, and God will utterly, absolutely restore and comfort you. At the same time, if the book of Job were only four chapters long, it would be an insult to suffering. It's a difficult, tough, exhausting, frustrating book, just like its subject. So it kind of has to be that way. We just interviewed uh, Jeremiah Johnson on his new book, Unleashing Peace, which I told him, I said, I have a little bit of problem with this happiness scenario you're peddling here, but he convinced me very quickly. And one of the things he observed in is since he's an apologetic kind of guy, he goes to campuses, and he said, you know, Michael, when I talk to kids, this comes up again and again. They're discouraged, they're suffering, they're living in pain. And so he took a step back and said, in order to minister the gospel to them, I've got to address some issues of pain. And so it was, in God's kindness, the way Hannah has organized some of our interviews, uh, your book came up. So anyway, let me start out. It's a poor question on my part. I know professors said there's no such thing as a stupid question, but having taught, there are some stupid questions. So this is a poor question. So how do I navigate, number one, did my sin bring on suffering? At one level, scripture says, indeed, we suffer because of our sinfulness. And the subset is, then if I stop sinning, will God fix my scenario? That's the first part. Yeah. Yeah. And you address this in the book. So jump in here. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You probably see this, Michael, interviewing so many people. There's something in the human mind that wants explanations. When something doesn't make sense, that really bugs us. Yep. And sometimes even very sincere godly Christians will go to strange lengths to explain something that doesn't make sense. I'm saying that at the beginning to say we should be aware of the desire of the human mind to have things make sense and just make peace with the fact that it won't always. My suffering because of my sin. It can be tempting to say everyone is a sinner, so if my life is going bad, then I must have done something to deserve it, or you must have done something to deserve it. It can be tempting to say that, but when I read the part of the Bible that has the most rules and the most penalties for breaking them, they're really specific. And it never, I can never find a single place in the Old Testament where it says, oh, your life's not going real good. Well, you must have done something to deserve it. It's always, always when they're suffering because of sin, it's known and specific and clear. Hmm. One of the reasons why I find Job so helpful and so profound is that it has this, we could call it a third category of suffering. My sense is most Christians, their explanations of suffering have to do with sin or spiritual growth which are superb explanations for suffering. They're utterly biblical and valid. And yet I think the book of Job opens up one dimension of a lifelong journey with God in which, strange as it might sound, God allows suffering and it has nothing to do with, you know, smacking you for something bad you did, and it has nothing to do with teaching you a lesson or making you a better Christian. And most Christians don't have that category. I'm convinced that the book of Job is the one place in the canon where it says sometimes this is what it'll look like with God. And and whenever I say that, inevitably, the next question is, so how do I know? And when I teach this in class, I will say, I have no good answer except very carefully. You have to be <laughs> careful and prayerful and brutally honest with yourself. But I think it's helpful to say, did you compromise integrity with God in some deep way? Let me, you... let, me, let me interrupt. Go ahead. I, I Go live ahead. with I live with twenty four seven chronic pain. I've had multiple back surgeries over the years. I'm so um, sorry. That's, that's okay. But you know the, the statement I tell people: I've never asked God why. Hmm. I haven't, and I'm not super spiritual. I'm just saying I'm a sinner who deserves hell. Back to your first category: I'm hmm. a sinner who deserves hell. I'm a fallen creature in a fallen context. Ergo, why would I ever be Job? I know better, right? That said, I do ask how. How do I live with unanswered questions? How do I live with chronic pain? How do I live not being unkind to my wife and children or being mm. short with people, which is where I can go to because I'm going, you got a hangnail and you're whining to me, you know, this type of bad sure. thinking, bad theology. Sure. But tied in that complex is, I don't want to run over this, we are sinners who deserve hell. Mm. To your point, we don't want to take that back to God's hammer over our head for what we did, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, no, we don't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So how do you help? Yeah. Let's get, not to rush by it, but let's move to the next point, asking you, you, you said about deeply, you know, carefully looking at your sin. How do I know, Doc? How do I know that I've examined? Now, Michael, the reason you've had five back surgeries is because of this unconfessed sin. You don't, you haven't really ponied up. Yeah. So is there unconfessed sin in your life? Probably every other day. <laughs> and yet and yet what I'm asking is 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 there a conscious defection against God where you allow uh, Michael I don't mean you directly. No, I mean no, that's you, a fair you know, question in I'm general. Not, go for but it. you you let a sin into your life and you said I'm going to make peace with this and not confess it. And the answer is no. 
No, it isn't. No, Especially, I'm, I'm harangued, and I think most Christians are, excuse the interruption, most Christians are harangued by their sin, and they they continually ask God to forgive them. Mm, yes. But they still might choose to live in that sin. Yeah, I think what Job addresses in the category I have in mind is not the normal struggle with sin, where you come to your senses, come back and repent and confess, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and helping you get better, but there's still a lot of sin in your life. That's not the particular situation where that the book of Job addresses. It's when someone is a Christian for 10 years, and they're a long way from perfect, but they imperfectly but sincerely walk with God, and their lives are pretty good, and then they have to bury one of their kids or something like that. And they come to you and they say, look, I am so far from perfect, but I didn't have an affair or embezzle funds. Right. I wasn't looking any anything on the internet that I shouldn't have. And the ways I did sin, I've confessed them and I've done everything I can. If God is punishing me for my sin, why didn't he let this happen early on when I was a Christian, when I still had a lot of bad habits? <laughs> it's it's when that non sequitur happens, when you're saying, I have not deeply compromised, I'm a sinner, and Job will say, when I needed to confess sin, I did, and I did it publicly. Yes. The book of Job becomes helpful and relevant. You know, I use this example in the book. When in 2 Samuel 12, when David's son with Bathsheba is dying and he's on the floor sobbing in pain, no one in that situation is going, oh, what a mystery. Why did that? Everyone knows why David is suffering. It's those difficult, difficult, mysterious times where some horrendous pain happens that just does not match up to anything bad that you've done. And you just can't explain it that way. When that happens, that's a sign to turn to the book of Job. So I will just ask people, I'll try to find the best most pastoral, gentlest way to say, is there unconfessed sin in some deep way? Not, are you a sinner? We all are. We are all getting better. But, you know, it's not the husband who has to apologize his wife to his wife for snapping at her. It's the husband who has an affair and keeps having it and doesn't, con- that kind, when you do that in your relationship with God. On uh, page 16, you write a couple things. That, first of all, I, I love you have such a great pastoral uh, nuance in the way you caveat this, which I, I think people will appreciate. I appreciated it. But you say, surely the most obvious explanation for the presence of pain in our lives in the present age is our own sin. And then further down, you say, indeed, part of our tragedy after the fall is that our sin and its consequences recur so frequently and deeply in daily life, which is what we're talking about, that it hardly occurs to us to view our shame and sadness as intruders in God's world. Lovely. Whenever I teach Genesis 3, I think Genesis, you hear those tragic stories about abused women who are so demoralized psychologically, they go back to their abusers. I wonder, I don't want to say anything offensive here, but I wonder if that's how God looks at us, that we're so used to the misery of sin that God is looking at us and saying, you have no idea how I had something so much better planned for you. And Genesis 2 and 3 is partially his way of revealing that and saying, you have no idea how good life can be. Yeah, Michael, think, if, irrespective of everyone in the world being converted, what if everyone just obeyed the second half of the Ten Commandments? (laughs) How much happier? It wouldn't eliminate (laughs) all evil and suffering, but how much happier we would all be? So I want to give suffering for sin due weight, but Job doesn't do anything to deserve his suffering. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and narrowly avoids being murdered only if they can cut a profit by selling him as a slave. 
He languishes for two years in prison after completely false accusation. Instead of being embittered, you write, the insecure and boastful teen of Genesis 37 is transformed using his God-given position of power and influence to bless his brothers instead of exacting revenge. Before I finish that sentence, I went, now wait a minute, Eric, help me out. And then you answer my question. Joseph struggles mightily to forgive his brothers, of course. Now, this is all hypothetical, and I hate asking hypothetical That's questions fine. about Scripture. How many years do you think Joseph had to struggle with the way he was mistreated and, again, accused by Pharaoh's wife, etc.? when he finally sees them? And, and this goes to a very relevant application for the Christian today. When someone does something to you unjustly and you suffer deeply, how do we forgive them, Dr. Orland? How do we... Oh, no big deal. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Yawn. Sorry, I can't get there that quickly. Yeah. Well, Michael, you could probably answer that better than I could. I think that forgiving someone does not mean that you feel at perfect peace over the way they hurt you. It means before God's presence and in light of his far deeper suffering and act of forgiveness of me, You consciously, daily, hourly decide not to prosecute your wrong and hold the other person's sin over their head and punish them for it. And you essentially say, if someone's going to suffer in this situation, if someone's going to hurt, it's going to be me. I'm not going to take my hurt out on you, even though you hurt me. I'm not saying it's easy. And I think sometimes when you forgive someone, it won't maybe always feel like you've forgiven them. You know, if I hit your car when it's parked and nobody's in it, and then I don't pay that money back, you might be really angry at me about that. But if you don't take me to court and you say, I will absorb those damages myself, then that looks like forgiveness to me. So when the perpetrator, and you mentioned abuse, hurts a person and never asks for forgiveness— and this, now let's just use the same illustration. A young woman lives for the rest of her life as an abused person. It, it damages her heart, her soul, yes. her relationships are broken. How does she, you know, again, this goes back to suffering. She's suffering from some other person's sin. How does she then process to the point, you might mention daily, I get that. It's a ledger. I get that. He forgives me. I get that. But Eric, it's still painful, and they're never going to ask me, or that woman, would you forgive me for what I did to you? Yes. Okay. There are much wiser Christians out there who can give better answers. And everyone listening right now, you know, listen to what your pastor says. Don't listen to what some weirdo from London says. No, no, no. I want to know what Eric for for an abuse (laughs) for a woman who has been abused, and the father has no idea. It just it he is he is so deformed morally. Hmm. He cannot take in or express, it will not register with him how deeply he damaged his daughter and does not ask for forgiveness. Michael, feel free to push back. But if that person is unrepentant, they're still in their sins. God hasn't forgiven them. So I don't think necessarily it's appropriate for the Christian to do so. However, for someone who has been deeply hurt, you need to continually ask yourself, if that person who hurt me showed up on my door tomorrow, knocked on the door and said, God has softened my heart and I see the damage I did to you and I'm sorry and I want your forgiveness, what would your response be? Right. Would your response be, I hope you go to hell. I hope God punishes you forever. Or would your response be, I want you to be forgiven as much 
as God does. I was reading a book by uh, years ago by Dan Allender called Bold. I think it was Bold yeah, Love. Yeah, Bold I, Love, I think yeah. I'm getting that right. Yeah, and he talked about counseling a woman whose husband has cheated on him. And he said, "If no, 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 sorry, I'm getting this wrong. It was a woman who had been abused, and he hypothetically said to this woman, if you had the ability to press a switch and kill your parents who abused you in a horrifically painful way, would you press that switch? And she sat there in agony because she said, you're saying to me, if I would press that switch, I'm not really much better than my parents. And the counselor said, yeah, I've really given you a dilemma and put you in a bind here. So I think the question that has to be asked, if the person came back and said, I'm genuinely sorry, and said, I can never give back what I took from you, but I am sorry, and I want a relationship with you, you might say, I'm not ready to trust you yet. That's okay. But would the response be, let's find out a way to make this work? If in your heart of hearts, if you slam the door in your face, or you say, no, I want you to suffer for your sin, then we need to seriously ask ourselves, on what basis do I expect God to forgive me? And that, that is awful. The and way fold, I'm saying yeah. this, no, I, no, I'm no, not I trying you. to imply, I think it's easy. Folded into the Lord's Prayer, folded into Peter's, you know, how many times do I forgive my brother? I um, acknowledge, I agree with you to that point. My question is more precise in that, let's just say, I hate to say this, it's never going to happen. The mm. person who inflicted the suffering on someone and justly treated them, took them to court, whatever it might be, in a wonderfully redemptive world, we'd love for those things to be reconciled. I love Paul's phrase in Romans 16, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at mm. peace with all men. Mm. But that if possible raises the flag. It's not. So now now I'm suffering. I'm back to Job. I'm suffering yeah. for something I had no say in. God allowed Satan to do this. That's another question. But how do I point the question? Do you and I have to forgive the perpetrator no matter if they ever respond to us? And the more important follow-up, that's going to hinder my spiritual growth, Eric, if I can't get beyond that injustice, if I, if I live as a victim the rest of my life, right? Yeah. Michael, I'm so happy for you or anyone listening to disagree. I think if God hasn't forgiven them, you don't have to. You have to be ready to if they repent. As Seriously ask yourself, would I be happy if this person repented? But I think if God hasn't, I don't think we have to. And then second, how does it hinder your spiritual growth? Every single Christian in the world has all kinds of pain. Michael, if we, we were yeah. off the air and you and I got to know each other really well, it's probably back pain isn't the worst thing in your life. I'm guessing because you live in this world. A religion like Christianity where the central symbol we have is a grotesque symbol of Roman torturing someone to death in an utterly shameful way. And that that is the central victory of God. Obviously, in some ways, pain hinders our spiritual growth. But there is a profound mystery where we can come before the crucified risen one and say, I'm in so much pain, I barely know how to articulate it. Will you meet me in this and bear this along with me? And I find what happens is that doesn't make the pain go away, but there's a kind of communion with the, with the Lord Jesus there. So that's a perfect segue. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a closed group of Facebook folks that all have deep chronic pain, a small group of people, about 40 of us. And yes. uh, I feel like the one with the hangnail in this group. These people are wheelchair bound. Some are bedridden and they're, they live in 24 seven excruciation pain. And so it's almost like I have to gin up my empathy to log on the Facebook page. Cause I know I'm going to read about intractable things and you're right. 
physical pain is a symptomatic of emotional for many people, probably most. But the corollary, and you bring this up, suffering and intimacy, one of the conundrum verses that I've taught it, I, I can explain it theologically, I don't integrate it. We're in our suffering, we're in our weakness, we're made strong. And this idea of the fellowship of suffering with Jesus Christ dismantles me, Eric. My suffering isn't like that of Jesus Christ. And he died for sinners like you and me, not because someone inflicted injustice or even my own sin that brought about pain. Sure. I'm prattling, but you know where I'm going here. So, so how how does this? Because you talk about the intimacy. There's an exquisite intimacy with suffering, albeit emotional or physical, and our walk with Christ. If what? Are you expecting me to say something <laughs> profound right now? You know, in the introduction to C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. He says that he originally wanted to write that anonymously, because if he said what he really believed, he'd come across as someone of such spirituality and fortitude, and everyone would be like, Lewis isn't like that. Lewis is a coward, you know? <laughs> Look, this kind of stuff is easier to talk about theoretically than it is to actually live. Two things come to mind. First, to repeat what I already said, that sure. somehow Jesus Christ, who knows suffering to the nth degree in every way, Suffering can become a platform and a context for communion with him in which he is with you in it and bears it with you, not in a way that takes it away. But I I just don't know what else to say. And secondly, more relevantly to the book of Job, when God puts you in a position where God gives you good reason to give up on him, in other words, where God destroys any kind of relationship with him where God is just there to make your life better, a big Santa Claus or a business partner, you know? where God gives you good reason to give up on him. And along with Job, you say, God can kill me and I'll keep trusting him. And maybe even you are surprised by that yourself. You're surprised by the words coming out of your mouth. Then you are delivered into a kind of intimacy with God because you're holding on to God for God's sake, irrespective of what it costs you. And it's kind of beyond words, but I think that's what the book of Job is about. And I think God's going to push all of us to that point in some way and at some point in our lives. In, in other words, if God's job is to make sure nothing bad happens to you, he is doing a terrible job of it, <laughs> and he's betrayed you. But well, God, and, allows, God allows inexplicable suffering that doesn't seem to improve you at all as a way for him to be God and not a business partner. And, and that goes back to this transactional relationship I call if-then theology. If I do sure. this, then God's incumbent on doing that, which is why sure. prosperity theology is such a lie from the pit of hell, because— if I gave this amount, then God would bless me. Well, I gave more than that amount, and he hadn't given sure. me anything back. So all these things that we're doing to God's people will, will yeah. I'm, I'm gonna talk, page 23, you cite a passage I so love in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read it. Verses 2 to 5, you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you should keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Someone else said that in the New Testament, didn't they? Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. You uh, know then in your heart 
that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You continue, despite these overlaps, Israel's wilderness wandering form a distinct chapter in their life with God. Israel's relationship with God takes on a particular shape after the Exodus as they journey toward the promised land. It is the same for the true new covenant believer in two ways. In a global sense, the whole of our Christian lives reflects Israel's history. A great observation, by the way. We have been redeemed by a greater Passover lamb from slavery, not a political power, but to those greater powers of sin and death, and we journey onward. Not a particular geographic location in the Middle East, but toward the new creation and the new temple where God's presence is. This means that all of our lives as Christians count as a kind of wandering in the wilderness of this present age. But Christians can wander in the wilderness in smaller and more specific ways. I thought that was a beautiful connection, Eric, between, and I, I'd not thought of it in those terms, but that that's analogous of this Christian life. We were provided every day with manna, a cloud by day, uh, cover by night, manna, water when needed, and we still doubted God. Sure. And again, just to be clear for the listeners, in the, in that first chapter which you quoted from, I'm trying to, you know, unfold and describe different kinds of suffering, like suffering for sin, suffering for spiritual growth, suffering for being persecuted as a Christian, and wandering the wilderness. That seems to be a peculiar sort of quality. One kind of experience, one kind of chapter you can have in your lifelong journey with God. All as a setup to say the book of Job is not like any of those. But yeah, I've talked with more than one Christian brother or sister who finds themselves in the wilderness, so to speak, at some point of their Christian life. Talk to me about lament. And I, I'm a student of the Psalms, and I love the lament Psalms. I love Psalms that don't have answers because I think that tells the worshiper, the reader, the singer of that Psalm then and now, God has not answered all my questions. There's not that if-then theology. You do a great job with this on the section of lament. Help our listeners who haven't yet read your book. Yeah, so a psalm of lament is one kind of category of suffering that's different from suffering for sin, different from Job. But uh, Michael, let me ask you this. Would you, do you have kids? I do. Would you let your kids say to you the kind of stuff that the psalmists say to God? To a degree, but there's a line. I think there's a line as well. I am really shocked at what you are allowed to say to God in the Psalms. I have never told God to wake up and do something. (laughs) I've never told him to do that. Maybe that's because I'm not biblical enough, you know? Maybe you're smart. I get the sense. So so to get your question, Michael, I get the sense that the Psalms deeply believe that God is going to be active in the world. He's going to be bringing about his kingdom through his people such that when that doesn't happen, the Psalms are deeply offended, and they say, Lord, why? Like, have you ever had those times where you think, Lord, why didn't you intervene in that person's life? Because if you had, that person and their whole family would be in church worshiping you instead of making fun of Christians. Like, why didn't you do something, Lord? Psalms of Lament diagnose a time where God, he doesn't absolutely abandon you, but he withdraws. He's not there in the same way that he used to be, and he doesn't act on your behalf the way you can reasonably, legitimately expect him to. Not an if-then transactional business partner kind of theology, but it looks like where you start to get questions where you're saying, Lord, why, why didn't you stick up for me there? What was going on with that? And the Psalms of Lament give us a vocabulary to talk about this. As you say, they don't really explain it, but they will talk about how 
a time of lament is always temporary. There is always a time when God is coming. You know that beautiful passage in First Peter 5, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, one calling you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. That's the end of lament right there. And as he does, as you talk about it with other Christians, God wins great worship for himself within God's people and outside when they can see how God has intervened for you. So a time of lament is a time of distance and inactivity from God such that your life falls apart, but it's always temporary. You get into this idea of intense and sometimes uncomfortable intimacy with God. Cindy and I have a very dear friend, Barbara Brand, who lives in Northern Virginia, and I'm using her name intentionally, and this story is used, and she tells it in her own speaking ministry when she does speak. But she has MS, and she has a type of, uh, I'm going to probably mispronounce it, trigeminalgia, that's excruciating mm. headaches that nothing can, nothing can touch. And she describes it as uh, it's like being in the bottom of a dark pit with three things, me, God, and pain. Yeah. Light, yeah. touch, sound can send her through the roof. But she says, I have three things. I have me, I have God, and I have pain. And then she goes on to say, I hate it when I'm there, but I don't want to leave. Wow. And I don't know many people that get there. I'm not there. I'm ready to say, okay, God, let's let's turn the, the thermostat down a little bit on the pain. It would be nice to give a reprieve to people. But there is an exquisite intimacy because the props can't help us, Eric. Wow. Medications, our spouse, our friends, you're alone with your pain. One of the most moving and profound moments in the book of Job is the last thing Job says, where, therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And I think he's punning in the poetry there. I think you could, I think repent in dust and ashes is a very good translation. I think he's also saying, I am comforted about dust and ashes. And I think the huh. dust and ashes, it refers to his suffering. And what I find so moving about that is Job is saying, I'm absolutely comforted over everything I've been through, even though nothing in my life has gotten better. He's still covered. When Job says that, he hasn't been restored at all. He's still covered with the boils. He's still smarting under the accusations of his friends. His, his 10 kids are still dead. He's still alienated from his wife. Nothing in his life externally has changed. But Job is flipped 180 degrees from God's a big bully to I am utterly comforted over everything I went through, and now I see who you really are. And I, th I think that may be Job's way of saying, there's me, God, in pain, and yet I don't want to leave. And one of the things, and I have a dear friend, Chris DeVito, who taught me this phrase, um, too soon old, too late smart. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like that in, in some of the things I've seen in Scripture these days. And one of the things I've been trying to help our congregation learn is, you know, our picture of Jesus Christ is so wrong because we, in our worldview, in the West, we formed a Western picture of God based on whatever, bad teaching, televangelism, God help us. But we formed an unfortunate picture of who this God is. And therefore, we come as consumers, consumerism, materialism, as our little gods to comfort our affliction, which they don't last. And so then we're bigger, better, newer, more. If then theology, what else can we do? And we haven't just taken a deep breath and said, who is this Jesus Christ? Hmm. and look full in his hmm. face. And you, you intimated this a moment ago, and I want to come back to it. The elements, you used the word communion. I find it striking that the, the way we're to remember him forever is a broken body and shed blood. 
the ultimate excruciating pain, the Latin word crucifixion, excruciation tied together. That's how he wants us to remember not just him, but what he did for us. Yeah. So the ultimate Savior, who, who was it that, um, I can't remember the great apologist that talked about the only, not original with him, I'm sure, but the only God of the universe who is the true God is the God himself who became, I'm, I'm, I'm messing up the quote, I'm getting addled. But you know what I'm talking about. He, sure. he died for his own people. There's that What kind of God does that? So this idea that we're going to get out of here with a happy and prosperous life and healthy and drop dead of a heart attack when we're 75 with a perfectly accurate mind and a 34-inch waistline, it's a fraud. Yeah, that's the American dream, and that's the American God, but it's not the real God. Yeah. Yeah. But back to my point, Job is seeing, now I, I've heard of you, now I see you. But Eric, my, my question to you is, he doesn't see the solution yet. You pointed that out. He's seeing a better picture mm-hmm. of God. And that Mm. calibrates him, right? It's amazing that God doesn't say, oh, Job, let me tell you what happened in chapter one that (laughs) the reader knows. God doesn't explain. God God doesn't let Job stand as an independent auditor to check God's bookkeeper. Well, that was C.S. Lewis, right? God in the dock. You know, if I could put you on the trial. Yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's amazing to me the quality of joy in God's speeches to Job. God is anything but unrealistic. Yeah, I want to about interrupt for a second. You pointed out in the just the third of the book I've read that was a striking observation I've missed. Expand on that a little bit. That when God's recorded in this book, He's not mad. Well, He corrects the friends, but back to your point of joy. Yeah. So God is complete. I take in God's speech. There's so much going on here that we don't have time to talk about. But in God's speeches. He's being utterly realistic with Job. So when he talks about lions, one German scholar compared a lion in the ancient Middle East, the level of terror a lion would have inspired in you, it, like picture like a deadly car accident for us. And when God talks about feeding lions, it's, it's a way of hinting to Job, first of all, look, I know my world is not perfect. Lions are very scary and dangerous. And my plan for the world is not to make sure nothing ever goes wrong, a perfect paradise where nobody gets hurt. And yet, Job, because I allow some suffering, you've been saying, I'm a monster who just doesn't care about innocent suffering or good behavior or anything. And when he talks about feeding lions and caring for them, it's a way of saying, Job, I'm kind and I take care of and I feed and I look after animals that are scary to you. That's not the way a cruel dictator would behave. Not only that, he talks about Leviathan, which is way, way worse than a, than a lion. So, Michael, repeat after me. I'm gonna I'm gonna hypnotize you. This is my mantra for the Book of Job. Okay, Leviathan is not a crocodile. Leviathan is, is not a crocodile. Not... I'm with you on that one. Okay, thank I, you. I agree. I Amen, agree. brother. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Leviathan is an appropriate ancient Semitic symbol for cosmic chaos and evil. And in talking about him, God is looking at Job saying, Job, you think you see the ugly side of life. You haven't seen the half of it. You know about Leviathan distantly. You mentioned him in chapter three. I am the one person who sees Leviathan up close. I am the one person who sees everything wrong in my world all at once. And I understand God to be implying to Job, there's coming a time I'm going to unsheath my sword and kill the Mm. monster, and I'm going to scour every last bit of evil and darkness and pain from this universe. Michael, I okay, I don't know if this is true, okay? But I think part of the promise of the book of Job is to every sufferer, God is, as it were, saying, on that great and final day, I'm going to give you a front row seat to the battle of your life, and you're going to watch me as I go to battle against that profound evil you suffered under. 
So we have God is utterly realistic about the world. He's going to fix the problem one day. And at the same time, as he talks about Leviathan, he sounds so cheerful <laughs> and courageous and ready to go. He is anything. He is anything but morose, defensive, apologetic, like, you know, we're very sorry we allowed this to, or, or whatever. He sounds happy. So if God can be happy in the world that Leviathan is still loose in, then maybe you and I can as well. Okay, gosh. That do, do, oh, do you see, Michael? Do you see why I find no? Can, do, do you see why I find Job so? Of profound? course. Well, and as I as I began again, I, I feel like a thimble of of information compared to you on this subject. But I'm struck with the length of the book, the complexity of the book, the practicality of the book, the fact that it's the oldest book. I don't think this is. Oh, by the way, because of our you know our condition, as it were, go back to this a little bit, if if you will. There is an exquisite intimacy. When all the props are taken away, I have a friend that's had two liver transplants. I've been literally on my back on the floor with my feet in a chair at 90 degrees for, I don't remember how many weeks it was, six weeks, three weeks, it's a blur, waiting for the surgery, and there's nothing that can mitigate the pain. And um, everybody has something, as one of my other friends who's had two liver transplants says, everyone has hard Everyone has hard, and I tell people all the time, this is not a competition or a comparison. Your pain is your pain. And if it's distracting enough to keep you from functioning, from thinking, from sleeping, it's real. It doesn't matter if Johnny Erickson Tata, who's 54 years in a wheelchair with cancer and chronic pain, sure, she's got a lot more pain than I have. That doesn't mitigate my pain. Back to my point, there is an exquisite intimacy when all the props are gone, it's me, God, and pain, as Barbara would say. And you've, I'm sure you wrote this book. There's a subtext here. What went on in Eric Ortland's life that drove him to write this book? There's some pain in your heart and soul, too. So talk about that exquisite place of being there alone with you, God, and pain. Well, it's it's really serious suffering. Do you want to know what the pain in my life is? I don't have a PlayStation 5. No, just kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> I could take joking. care of that. Michael, my, my theory of the Christian life is that something's going to grow, go wrong in your life somewhere, somehow. Your health will fall apart. Your finances will fall apart. Things at work will fall apart. A significant relationship will fall apart. Something like that. And, you know, with my close friends, I can see something always goes wrong with life. And uh, for me, it was a couple of years of my life. I don't really know how much I can talk about this on the radio because it involves other people and I haven't gotten their permission. There are a number of close relationships that became really unbearably painful for me. And God has healed them and redeemed them. But it's the kind of thing where every day I've got to keep forgiving and saying, I've got some right to hold this over your head and make you suffer for it, for the wrong that you did to me. I'm going to forego that right. And if someone suffers in this situation, it'll be me. And I want you to be free of the consequences of your sin. So, so I realize I'm being real vague there. But, but 20, 2014 to 15 was the worst year of my life so far. And it really felt like God let the devil go after me and my family for about a year. It was longer than that, but that was the worst time. And it, just in God's providence, in 2015, the summer, it just felt like God said, okay, that's enough. And the Ortland family's life is going to get a lot better. But it was a scary, it was a scary time wondering, is God going to let me get broken? Because sometimes that yeah. happens. Now, he chose not to do that, which I'm eternally grateful to. 
for him. But when I talk about wandering in the wilderness, I've had to read those passages and numbers more than I want to. And you learn you are not as sanctified as a Christian as you thought you were when God sends you into the wilderness for a time. And you really have to trust him like you never did before. And that's back to my my friend Chris DeVito, too soon old, too late smart, that as Christians, this if-then theology, this Western construct, we and we, we don't intentionally harbor it or pander it, but it's it's kind of hardwired in the way we're taught in churches. And um, I have this expression that I do from time to time when I'm talking about something um, rather lamenting or pensive, and I, I take my fist like this and go, yes. another cheery Michael Easley sermon, and everybody laughs, because yeah. I, I think there's a there's a missing component in so many churches yeah, we talk about depression, and we might have some, you know, catharsis from a pastor, but we don't sit there. You know, tell me if you if I'm wrong, but one part of the book I like is that when his friends just sat there and shut up for a few days. Yeah, that's a good yeah. lesson. Yeah, well, one of the things Tim Keller says is that God can't forgive sin without huge suffering. So what makes us think we uh. sh- we will be able to forgive others without suffering, and God can't redeem the world? without unimaginable suffering. So what makes us think we're going to get to be redeemed or somehow participate in the redemption of the world and the mission of the church without immense suffering? Why would we even think that? Not to uh, to pick at, because I've got similar stories too, things that happened to me that are too personal and pertinent to talk about in detail. But in general terms, you... Me, others were attacked, assaulted, injustices, horrible things, and maybe there's been a little bit of a repair and relationship, but it's never as complete. You know, it's like the the woman who was abused by her uncle or her brother or father. You can say a lot of things. You can go to counseling, but those scars are there. And uh, I can tell you, my second daughter and I have some pretty significant scars physically in life. And we've, we talk often about, you know, it doesn't ever completely go away, even though it's healed and it's been years. Sometimes it gets, there's problems with scars. And it's an interesting al- analogy. But how does Eric move beyond? I mean, I got the cliches. Pray for the people that have hurt you every day. I know I'm a sinner that deserves hell. You know? It doesn't always take away the the sadness and the frustration and the anger, Eric. Sure. No, it doesn't. And that's okay. It it shouldn't necessarily. There's no perfect resolution that you can get, you know. There's so many possible different answers you could give. If you ask me, I, I was reading a book once, and I heard a story about a Japanese soldier who wanted to get better, uh, at doing the sword, sword fighting. So he goes to a sword master and says, teach me how to use the sword. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in battle all the time. And the sword master says, okay, show me how you hold the sword. So the Japanese soldier holds him. And the sword master says, who taught you how to sword fight? You're, you're an expert. And the soldier says, what are you talking about? I'm a beginner. Nobody taught me. And, and the master says, come on, tell me who taught you how to use the sword. And the soldier says, I don't know what you're talking about. And the expert says, okay, what's going on here? And then eventually the soldier says, every day I wake up and I think about dying. I'm going into battle almost every day. And I think about arrows piercing me or some guy skewering me with a sword or a spear or a horse riding me down. Every single day, I think about that. And the, the sword master looks at him and says, I don't have anything else to teach you. You know how to use the sword. God himself, it's amazingly moving to me. Michael, if you and I could see the chaos and the evil that loosened this world, God says to Job, you, you couldn't even touch him. You wouldn't even be able to keep your feet with that. 
And Jesus, our divine warrior, defeated that by suffering its worst and submitting to it. And he reigns in glory and joy at the right hand of the Father, still bearing the scars of his agony. And he calls us into this great journey, this great war, in a much, much smaller way to suffer along with him, not to forgive sins or atone sins or anything like that, but to participate with him. And I am so flattered that God took me seriously enough not to say, Eric, here's your PlayStation and here's a family and go work in an office until you die. But he says, Eric, Leviathan is still out there. I've broken its back on the cross. It's still out there thrashing around. You're going to help me defeat him. And it's going to cost you. You know, I heard about, there's some British explorer, the first one who went to the South Pole, and the advertisement he made for British men to come with him, I can't remember the wording, but it's superb. It's Shackleton. like high risk of death, yeah. immense yeah. suffering yeah. along the way. Low, low risk few, of success, uh, likely of few, death. Few yeah. rewards but, but, good men wanted. But if if we succeed, glory. And, and, and there's something <laughs> about that. There's something about that that I find... And there's something about God's joy. He is utterly realistic about what is wrong with this world. The one, if you and I think, well, whenever we're tempted to say God's doing a bad job running the world or he's unsympathetic to human beings, he sees every ounce of pain in the world right now, all the time. And he is still, I get the sense in the book of Job, God is still so happy the sun rose today. And it's not because he's viewing the world with rose-colored glasses, irrespective of the joys of eternity. He's happy for the world to exist right now. He's happy for me to exist right now. And he gives me this awesome privilege of being a human being in his world, and the God of peace will soon trample Satan under my feet. Wow. Sign me up. I got about 1,500 more questions, and we're out of time. The suffering wisely and well, the grief of Job and the Grace of God by Eric Ortland, L-U-N-D, Crossway Publication. Brand new book, 2022. You can get it anywhere. Books are sold online. Order your copy, Kindle, if you want to do it that way. A hard copy, if you can get a hold of it. Eric, will you come back and let's talk some more about this? I, I, I just have the sense that the American church, I don't know about in England, but the Western church is so, it's not realistic. It's spiritually realistic. It's not biblically grounded. You're going to suffer. Bad things are going to happen. Injustices will occur. You mentioned it. You're not going to get out of here. As my friend Ashley says, everybody has hard, and we are very poorly equipped to not fix it, but help people understand from a little bit better biblical framework, he's sovereign, I'm not. And as you've so eloquently said in your, in your last comment, we get to participate in this. I don't understand all I know. You asked me all the hard questions. I ain't never coming back. No, I'm joking. I'd love to come back anytime. Just don't ask me hard questions about forgiveness. No, that's what well, we're going to have a whole section on. How do you forgive somebody that's a jerk? Yeah. No. <laughs> don't ask me, Michael. Don't ask better you than me, my friend. Thank you very God much bless for you. Thank me, you for your time, Eric. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.